0: Welcome to Read by Example, where teachers are leaders and leaders know literacy. And I am excited to have Isabel Stevenson here with us. She is the newsletter author of The Coaching Letter and is also the co author of multiple books, uh, most notably that I'm aware of, the Making Coaching Matter with uh, Sarah Wolfen. And Isabel, who's the third author on that? Harry Lord. Thank you, thank you. And I have not read it. My colleague bought it, and uh, Ellie and she, she, I asked her if I could preview it. And she's keeping it at home, so I think she knows I'm trying to <laughs> um, subtly uh, take it off her hands. So um, it's it's a book in high demand in our in our organization right now. So welcome, Isabel. We're happy you're here. Thanks.
1: I'm very glad to be here.
0: So we're just going to get started, and I also want to welcome, uh, by the way, Deborah Crouch, um, also. Uh, Esteemed colleague here. Welcome, Deborah.
2: Hi, how are you?
0: Good. Good. And yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself, Isabel, and in your work, just your role and just your journey to today. How did you get to where you are now?
1: Well, uh, that's a very long story. My <laughs> name is Isabel Stevenson. I work for Partners for Educational Leadership, which is a small nonprofit um, based in Hartford, Connecticut. I think we're better known as the Connecticut Center for School Change. We went through a name change a few years ago, but we've been very involved in uh, instructional realms. That partnership with Harvard that goes back decades. Um, I have been, I've done all sorts of things. I've been a classroom teacher. I have been an assistant principal, a principal, a central office administrator. Um, I've been in my current role for 10 years now. Um, I love it. Uh, we, have, we contract with districts who are looking for support um, to bring about a variety of, of projects um, in equity and uh, instructional improvement. Um, and so I do that through supporting them um, with um, coaching work and um, strategic planning. And um, a lot of uh, currently a lot of improvement science or continuous improvement work. So it's, it's very cool. I get to work with a lot of really interesting and, and uh, thoughtful people. So it's, it's very fun.
0: Cool. And your coaching letter ties right into what you just described. Of course, I um, mean, you have a monthly newsletter with Substack and you're that space is about two things: culture and failure, which I thought was just a <laughs> combination. I never, I've never seen that, but the more I've read of your newsletter, the more it makes sense. But, but why are those things two together?
1: So, um, I think so. I'm going to talk about culture first. I think that we um, we mythologize organizational culture in interesting ways and not always very helpful ways. We tend to uh, talk about it like it's a, a real thing, you know. We reify it, um, and people uh, people will say things like, "Well, you know, the culture won't let us do that," or "Culture won't support that," like it, like it's some kind of, you know, rogue parent. I mean, I I I just don't understand. So we have a working definition of culture. Um, culture is the just the label. That we give to the beliefs that people hold about what their organization really values, um, and so what success looks like for them. So um, you can have a culture of compliance where what matters is that you show up on time and that you, you know, turn up to lunch duty and you make sure that your attendance is always in when it should be, and those kinds of things. You know, when the when the principal shows up in your classroom, your classroom is an orderly place and you're doing all the right things and. Or you can have a culture of experimentation where the organization is um, learning actively, you know, actually um, preemptively, deliberately running experiments and trying things. And when you run experiments, there is failure. And that's where the learning is. So that's how I see these things connected, right? I, I want to promote a culture where people feel like the the best thing that you can be doing is improving your practice your instructional practice in service of students and the way to do that is to work with other people and to run tests and be constantly trying to figure out the best way to get things done so there's obviously a lot of failure involved in in that but i i i think that's what we should be supporting people through
0: mm-hmm. I, I as i read those lines that 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 content in one of your um, posts, I was reminded of some of Robert Keegan's work. And in the book Um The Everyone Culture, I think it's called the the first line is everyone's walking around doing a second job. Um that second job is protecting their own ego and their own identity. And uh, that just reminds me of of what you described here. Does that do you does your work yeah. align pretty well with that?
1: Yeah. So I mean that's a we could spend all afternoon just talking about that book right so that's a particularly fascinating book and um you know what so yes it it does to a certain extent in that um i believe that people generally are in organizations where they feel like they have to do a lot of self-protection you know that that they are um employing defensive thinking And the organization is engaged in defensive routines. Um, But I think that book also has a view of feedback that I don't really share. And um, but yes, I mean, I I think there are a lot of similarities.
0: Mm -hmm. So the term intelligent failure I I wrote here is an organizational disposition disposition where you're actually wanting people to make mistakes, um, which just feels counter just coming out of 23 years out of the school system of, as a teacher and leader myself. Um, I can see how that could be a hard sell sometimes. Um, the, what conditions would you feel like would need to exist for that to be, or what conditions have you seen in schools where failure is almost the, the de facto mode um I remember just talking with your colleague Sarah Wolf and asking her what's um what what would a coach need to do the most to be successful at first? And she said just being very open and transparent about my their role as a coach. So I imagine clarity is one thing, transparency about roles. Um so that was one thing. But what else seems to be in place have you found for mistake making to be accepted in cultures?
1: So that line, um that phrase intelligent failure comes from the work of Amy Edmondson and uh, her latest book, the, I think it's called right kind of wrong is well worth reading. And it talks about, uh, well, it talks about many things around failure, but one of them is around uh, this idea of running experiments, right? So not all mistakes are good. Not all failure is good. In fact, some failure is very, very bad. So, um, what we're really trying to do is the, the mistakes that we want people to make are very small ones mm-hmm. in the service of learning as opposed to big mistakes where kids can go for weeks and nobody's really paying attention to how well they're doing and they they are the ones who end up failing at the end of the year and that is an inexcusable failure, right? As opposed to the kinds of intelligent failure that we're talking about. So um, I lean very heavily on her work. She talks a lot about running, so for example, running pilots, um, but doing that in a really constructive and and useful way. Um, And so doing your homework, right? There's we're not trying to fail for the sake of failing. If someone's already done this work, where we want to know, right? So do your homework and and know where the growing edge is. Um, But your question was actually about conditions. So um, I very much draw from my background as a coach and this idea um, that judgment is the trust killer. Mm. If you want people to experiment productively and fail intelligently, then it has to be safe. And one of the ways in which you can do that is to remove judgment and for people to know that there is no retribution, there is no downside to intelligent failure. Um, so I think that gets communicated in lots of different ways. I think there is the uh, explicit messaging that leaders give around this, how they organize teams, what they say, what they promote, how people um, understand, You know, what is the clarity around this. But there's also all the implicit messaging as well around um, facial expressions and body language and some of the subliminal kind of things that people are very, very good at picking up on. And it, it's a stretch for leaders because it's not their default, right? So they've grown up with mental models that say uh, the leader gets to decide what's good or not. So the leader uh, is right because the leader is in charge, not necessarily because they are actually right all the time. So we have we have a lot of power structure, a lot of hierarchy, um, and all that kind of have to reverse, right? The leader has to show up in service of the teacher who is doing the experiment, not to give them feedback because the, the principal or the leader is not the one conducting the experiment. The teacher is the one conducting the experiment. Yeah. So we we are trying to flip the script that um, instead of the leader showing up to tell the teacher what they're doing well or not, the leader shows up to find out what the stumbling blocks are and to help the teacher remove those stumbling blocks. And that to us is a very, very different approach to the typical approach to leadership.
0: Yeah, that's a, it's a partnership approach, almost like I want to come in and I want to support you being successful because when you're successful, the kids are successful. So what can we do to, um, to do this together? Yeah, I love that. And I, I think most principals could get behind that, but you know, I, I, like you said, it's just not how we were trained or how we were, you know, when we were hired. When I was hired as a principal, that wasn't, wasn't in my job description, and you know, and the and I, I like the comment you made too about the implicit messaging to the, especially the body language, the nonverbals I think that comes back to your, the beliefs, right? Like I can say one thing, but I'm acting in another way, which communicates my beliefs about something that might be contradictory to, to where we're trying to go. So, so it sounds like self-awareness and then really taking some time to reflect on our beliefs, also pretty important.
1: Yes. And there's, there's a lot of language around it as well. Mm-hmm. So when something um, doesn't go well, the language can't be, um, oh, don't worry about it. Don't you know? I'm. I had just had this conversation this afternoon, actually. Um, no, I'm not going to be mad. I'm. I'm not going to be mad if it doesn't go well. We should just really try it. To oh, well, let's hope that this doesn't work because we're going to learn more if it doesn't work. If you try it and it works well, that means that you were already doing you know, enough to do this, right? You already have that capacity. There's no growth here. Mm-hmm. So the language has to change. The mindset has to change. The stance has to change. There's a lot in the the leadership disposition that has to change.
0: And that's got to trickle down. If if there is cultural change, it's got to trickle down to the kids too. I mean, I, I have two high schoolers and my daughter is very, very interested in being valedictorian. And, you know, so her and her friends are talking about their GPAs and stuff. And she's getting straight A's, which is great. But I I have asked like asked her, like, what are you learning? <laughs> if you're always getting A's. Um, so anyway, just a sidebar, but again, thinking about culture, it I think it's got to affect not just the teaching, teacher leader relationship, but also the student relationships too, with, with each other and with their teachers.
1: Yes. So I'm working on several projects right now where we're trying to get feedback from from students as to what they're learning and how these changes in the classroom are impacting them. Mm -hmm. Um, We go back to uh, the MET study, which was done 10 years more than that now, um, which showed that students are actually very accurate and reliable. Writers of classroom instruction, they are good judges of, of instruction. They recognize good instruction when they experience it. And so um, we're trying to tap into that more. Um, students, we've, we've done interviews with students. We're in the process of, of collecting some um, very informal um, data from students at the moment, just using an iPad and some emojis. Like, are you thinking, are you having to think hard in this class, this class making? Mm-hmm. Um, because we think that they actually have a lot of, of really useful insight that we should be tapping into.
0: Yeah. Just listening to my, my own kids talking about their teachers and kind of knowing the school, it's like, yep, they're not, they're not wrong. And when they kind of talk about who their favorite experiences are in, in school. So that's very interesting pulling that student feedback um so then you know you're you're big on coaching you, you feel like coaching is um is definitely a a pathway to achieving some of this of these outcomes so do you feel like a culture of coaching is the answer to the status quo um or if not what what might be where am i asking a well um,
1: so that's, I mean, that's an interesting question. So in terms of the status quo, so I, I think that we should have in our organizations a shared understanding of what high quality instruction looks like, which frequently we do not. Frequently it's up to the individual coach or the individual teacher or the individual principal to decide what good is going to look like Um, And I I think that's a mistake. Uh, I think that there's so much power and efficiency in working from a shared understanding so that we're all on the same page and we can all be trying out things in service of improvement. So um, I'm a big fan of both coaching and improvement science because both are vehicles for getting us on very small rapid cycles of continuous improvement Uh, we give out stickers that say uh, what can you get done by next Tuesday Um, so this idea of like okay what's what's the smallest thing you can try that'll move you a little bit closer What what's the smallest thing and who are you going to try that with Um, we write recipes so (laughs) I mean I'm just gonna because I see this as all part of changing the culture, right? So currently we have a culture where teachers try something, some new practice they're supposed to implement based on some professional development that they had or some workshop that they went to. And then a principal shows up in their classroom and watches them try this and uh, gives them feedback, which may or may not be any use to the teacher, and may or may not be based on any actual expertise the principal has. So right now we're working on many districts um, that are implementing building thinking classrooms, the Peter Lillydahl work. Well, the number of principals who've taught, current principals who actually taught using building thinking classrooms, because this is so new, the number of them is so close to zero, it's completely insignificant. And the idea that a principal would show up in a te- in a teacher's classroom who's trying to implement building thinking classrooms, which is not an easy thing, and somehow give them useful suggestions, I just don't understand how that's supposed to work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So what we try and do is uh, help people write recipes instead. And I, I love this. This is a metaphor that I'm very fond of. So... Let's say, for example, that I make really good blueberry muffins and uh, I want to publish this recipe in my next cookbook. Well, I may come to you, Matt and Deborah, and say, will you will you test my recipe? Mm-hmm. And you think, oh, blueberry muffin sounds great. Of course, I'll test that recipe. And then I come back to you and say, so how is the recipe? And you say, hmm. think there might be a little too much sugar in it I think you might want to check the sugar cut back a little bit and the blueberry signs the bottom so you know i'm sure that you toss them in flour before you put them in but that's not in the recipe so shouldn't you add that to the recipe and it's really clear in this relationship that we have that it's the recipe that's being tested yes it's not you you're not being tested as the cook it's the recipe that's being tested. And only the person who's testing the recipe is entitled to give comment about the recipe. I am not watching you try and make the recipe and giving you feedback because that's not the point. point is to test the recipe. So that's, that's a metaphor that we're really working hard to promote at the moment because it, it changes everything around, right? So yeah. when I show up as the principal, I'm not telling you what you should be doing differently i'm trying to find out from you how is the recipe working is that helping you or not and what can we do to make that different so i think that's that changes the role of leadership but it also changes the role of coaching so i think too often and this is what making coaching matter is all about um, too often coaches are hired as a kind of solution Mm-hmm. Oh, our seventh grade literacy scores are really low. So we're going to hire some coaches or, um, you know, our um, fourth grade. Um, oh, whatever. Our fourth grade is just kind of languishing right now. So there's a dip at fourth grade. So we're going to hire some coaches and people don't really think through what exactly they're expecting those coaches to do. They're expecting I think that the coach is going to show up and teach teachers how to teach the way that they taught, but that doesn't really work all that well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, like, can we just all decide what high-quality instruction is going to look like? So it's not the coach who's the arbiter of quality. There is a district definition, and that we collectively are working on perfecting these recipes so that we will all have access to a cookbook, a set of practices that we all agree are the best way to go about some particular classroom practice. And so it it, it changes, changes the power dynamic, it changes the flow of feedback, changes a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you're wanting teachers to be actively involved in the improvement of their own practice, then you have to put them in charge of that. They have to be researchers of their own practice. Mm-hmm. And that's how I see the leadership and the coaching
0: as being connected. Mm-hmm. Thinking of a couple of things, just from what you shared there first, it's the interchangeableness of coaching of coaches and leaders. Like I don't, that, that, that really blurs for me when I hear that model. And then just to clarify, like you're talking, like teachers actually write out recipes. I mean, it, of what they're trying to yeah. do. Yeah. Okay.
1: We're that's working, cool. we have a, we have a, a, a slew of them right now, a menu of them right now. Um, people are working on testing a, a think-pair-share recipe um, mm. to support building thinking classrooms. Um, I think the one that I just saw come across that somebody just posted was for um, consolidating a divergent thinking task, which is, again, very, very BTC-inflected. So, yeah, so, you know, coach or leader, shows up to a group of teachers and says, we're really trying to improve this. We think we have a recipe that will help with that. So can you please uh, test it out and tell us how it works? And we're particularly interested in finding out the the failure points uh, on the stumbling blocks so that we can improve the recipe. And so that if everyone's working from an improved recipe, then." practice across the board is going to improve. One of the things that we know about schools is that there is more variation in quality of instruction within schools than there is across schools. And we need to fix that, right? We need to make sure that the classrooms where the practice is weakest improve so that they are much closer to the classrooms where the practice is strongest. And I don't think you can do that unless you're much more explicit about the kind of practices that those really strong classroom teachers employ.
0: Yeah. And I, I think
1: the, the recipe avenue vehicle is a really great way of doing that.
0: I've never heard that. Um, Deborah, have you heard that before? The, the idea of using a recipe?
2: No, and I have, so I guess like part of my head is
0: uh, uh,
2: rolling around with this. Um, like I'm thinking about, so how do we think about how we're being responsive to kids? If we, if we in our head, think we have a recipe, how does that conversation then get incorporated on how we're adjusting for the students that are in front of us?
1: Is so that's that-
2: probably, that could be in the recipe. So at this point, you should ask these questions.
1: So we also have um, an instructional model that we use that talks about, um, you know, making sure that kids are on grade level task, making sure that, that kids are thinking, right? So centering student thinking and then making thinking visible. Um, and so a lot of what we're promoting is uh, how the kind of practices that teachers use to ascertain where students are in their understanding so that they can respond to them. Um, and I, I guess I'm just fed up with this idea that we observe teachers and then we try and have conversations with them afterwards that involve like a lot of leading questions well don't Mm -hmm. you you know have you considered that you should you know maybe ask them to do this or how are you how do you know that all students um so done with that so can we just write a recipe that says you know, here are the hinge questions that you might ask at this point, or, you know, here are the, um, here's how to organize groups so that students are on non-permanent vertical surfaces, making their thinking visible so that you can respond to them. Uh, I want to make a distinction between a recipe and a script, Mm -hmm. right? The recipe, you know, like, you may not want the amount of sugar that I have in my blueberry muffin recipe, or maybe you want more of that really good crunchy sugar on the top, right? You have the ability to flex that. Uh, the idea I like, the reason I like the recipe metaphor so much, it's partly because of the, you know, who's in charge and who's actually got the power. Yeah. But also because I think the specificity is exactly the right grain size. It's not a script script. It's not immutable. You know, your oven may heat differently than my oven. Um, If you're a bread baker, you know that the amount of humidity in the kitchen is really important. You know, you can adjust all these things and it's still... um, So in in Learning to Improve, they talk about um, not fidelity of implementation, but integrity of implementation. And that's kind of the the frame that I bring to this
0: mm-hmm.
1: so
2: it's that yeah. planning to be responsive mm-hmm. yes you can't, yeah. yeah because I think that's that's what I see a lot of times with uh, my work with teachers is that they're not quite sure what to do in that moment and so if you've talked through some of those possibilities mm-hmm. um then a teacher has a way of making a decision in that moment
0: great awesome. yeah and just a few more things just to Still trying to process this whole idea. It's just I'm gonna steal it by the way. Not steal it, but I'm gonna, you know, what we all do is um lift these great ideas and spread them. So uh, but it really kind of makes a third point for our instruction. It's just like here's a distillation of what I feel like is good instruction, a model. And you know, you may want to try it. So it's a third point, like you were saying, it's objective. It's not a um, it's not a if there's criticism, it's not on me, it's on the process, you know, and then the ideas of how to do this. So much easier to get feedback on that than um, than toward a person, which we can identify with too closely. And, and I love the idea of, yeah, you're absolutely right. Recipes can and often are changed to meet the conditions that we're working with So it's a it's a brilliant idea. Um, just to kind of close things out here. Um, If you were to wave a magic wand and change one thing about schools as they currently are, what would it be?
1: I would want to change what leaders believe leadership is. Mm -hmm. I think mostly, often, they believe it's about having the answer and telling people what to do. And I think it's about not having the answer, and helping people figure out what to
0: do. Perfect. I mean, complex, but um, yeah, I, I I concur with that. Um, any books? You mentioned uh, Learning to Improve. I think that's Anthony Brick. Is that right?
1: Yeah, Brick. Yes, Brake. Tony Brick.
0: Tony, yeah. okay.
1: Brick et al., Mm-hmm. Um uh I have a stack of them right, you know, next to me here. The things that I'm um okay. reading at the moment. Um we use Beyond Heroes. Mm. Beyond Heroes and Becoming the Change. They're both um written by Kim barnas B-A-R-N-A-S, and they're both out of healthcare, but they're really great and really challenging. Um, and in particular, there's a, a chapter in um Beyond Heroes that talks about standard work for leaders. So this idea of you know recipes in terms of schedule and process that leaders should be following. So that's my next frontier, I think. Um, there's the Amy Edmondson book about right kind of wrong. And then there's another book called Being Wrong by Katherine Schultz. I, do, I reread that recently, it's a great book. Um, and then right next to me is The Voltage Effect about about scaling innovation, John List, and then an old book that I, my, so my basement flooded a few weeks ago. So we had to bring up, you know, boxes and boxes and boxes of books and all these things kind of surfaced that I hadn't seen for a long time. It was really great. And it was like, oh, that just showed up at the right time. There's one called Deep Survival by uh, Lawrence Gonzalez. And I'm I'm rereading that again. I I read it, yeah, 20 years ago. It's a great, great book.
0: Is that fiction or non-fiction? Non-fiction. nonfiction. Oh,
1: who has the time for fiction? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I, don't I try to make time. I uh, I just got this book, The Reformatory, by Tanana T- Reeve Dew. So she's uh, it's just, I think if you've read Nickel Boys by Colton Whitehead.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, Colton Whitehead. Yeah. It's,
0: I think it's in the same vein, but I think it's more horror than than uh historical fiction right. <laughs> but it's um you know it's the season right but yeah, the um, season. yeah that's so i was on, on my to read list so i try to find a little bit of time for fiction but uh yeah i i hear you so many non-fiction books out there out there that is on my to read list how about you deborah any books um i'm in the reading.
2: midst of um the covenant of water which is really good um
0: the about, covenant of water
2: yeah about a third of the way through that i've started it um oh he actually had a really great uh, line one of the characters said um um about fiction just as you were saying it um uh it says fiction is the great lie that tells the truth about how the world lives
0: mm-hmm.
2: Had a great line i loved yeah. that yeah i took I a like note of that because i was like I'm going to use that somewhere but yeah you'll, it's really um uh,
0: you'll have to like email the, that to me include it in the show mm-hmm. notes yeah all right Um, well thanks Isabel, for being here and thank uh, you where can can people find you if if they have want to learn more about your work and your books and
1: so i think i'm really easy to find on substack yep if you search substack for the coaching letter that'll come up and you'll all my details are there Mm -hmm. Uh, or you know our website is partners4el.org you can find me there um, so yeah I'm pretty I'm'm I'm, because of the unusual spelling of my name I'm very easy to find on the sure. internet so and, and I I'm, I'm very good at responding to emails so if anyone has any questions or or anything I'm very happy to engage.
0: awesome thanks Isabel for being here.
1: yeah thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed the chat.